Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Welcome everyone to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. We're so happy you are able to join us for this episode today. Today we are going to be joined by registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, Katie Hake. And so, Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I am so happy to be here. Um, thanks for that intro. I am a Purdue grad, so I've really, I guess, where my journey started, I started actually in um, as a tube feeding coach, I guess is the best way to put it. So, you know, my path to become a dietitian, I feel like definitely had its twists and turns that kind of led me to here where I am. So I spent some time as a bariatric dietitian working in weight loss surgery. Um, that's kind of really where I discovered intuitive eating when I started doing a lot more one-on-one -on -one counseling work in uh, the outpatient setting. And then from there, I actually spent some time as a metabolic dietitian. So working with children and adults who have rare um, inborn diseases of, of metabolism. So kind of jumped all around and, uh, you know, but at the same time, I really have a strong fit, strong background in fitness. And so my, my journey really began at Purdue when I became a personal trainer, was teaching group fitness. And I've always had really that entrepreneurial spirit. And so I've always been helping whether my personal training clients or friends and family, you know, educating them on nutrition and fitness. And so I really probably didn't get serious with my own private practice until, um, about, oh my gosh, what year is it? We skipped a year, so I have to do the math. Uh, <laughs> I'd say about four, four and a half, almost five years ago. And um, now I have a virtual practice primarily where I counsel women, pr women primarily, but some men, one-on-one uh, -on -one in small groups uh, with this intuitive eating model because it's a framework of eating that I'm, I'm so excited to talk about today because it fires me up. <laughs> Yeah, great. Excellent. So um, lots to dig into there. We want to be able to share with our listeners. But first, um, when we were talking before, you set, mentioned being married during the pandemic. So speaking of missing year, tell <laughs> us what that experience was oh, like. Oh, my goodness. I think I planned, they say planning one wedding is stressful, but I think I planned like three weddings. So, you know, it all worked <laughs> out. It's, it's kind of crazy looking back. You know, we were set to get married in April of 2020 and you know the shutdown happened what three four weeks before no it was about a month before oh, and uh my husband and I were living in you know tiny apartment working side by side being with each other 24 7 we're like okay if we can make it through this I think that's a good head start for marriage but we ended up getting married <laughs> on our actual date this was before masks were even a thing which is crazy to think about it was just uh, not even all of our family, just a few of us, our, our parents and, and his parents. And then we had, we said, oh, we'll push back our reception till August. And uh, August came and went and we had just a small group. So it all worked out how it was meant to be, but it was fun. And if anything, we've got a great story to tell. So. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations on, on surviving all of that and for starting a new journey in your life. Um. So to get us started, you know, we hear a lot of, of terms thrown out, like eat this, not that, you know, do this, don't do that. And, and it like develops this culture of dieting, if you will. 
And so what, what does that mean? What is a diet culture and what does that mean to us as a society? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and it's, it's funny talking as a dietitian and any dietitians who may be listening, you know, we think of the word diet often as just what you eat, right? It's just your eating pattern, but really our society over, over the years has really developed kind of taken back that word diet and really put this negative connotation to it that almost is restrictive. So the best way that I can describe diet culture is, is just how it shows up in our world. So diet culture looks like, you know, a five-year-old being afraid to eat a cookie at school because she's afraid of what her parent or the teacher might say, or it's a, you know, teenage teenager at the cafeteria who doesn't want to eat the food that her mom cooked because it's not healthy or it's, you know, it's not trendy like, like her other peers are eating, or maybe it is, you know, we're talking about weddings. Maybe it is the bride who feels that pressure, you know, maybe no one says anything to her, but there's that unspoken pressure of you've got to lose weight in order to fit into your wedding dress, or you need to be a certain size in order to have value, in order to have worth, in order to, you know, be successful or even healthy, which, which can, you know, is really done. It's, it's in those everyday situations, but it's also a lot that is not spoken in the media and that we kind of just take on. Yes. On the diet culture. And I was thinking of, um, like the whole exercise, you said you're very into fitness. And so I, so many people are, you know, I, I'm going to have to work out because I ate this cookie or a piece of chocolate or whatever. Um, and it's really hard not to get sucked into that conversation though of, Oh, I shouldn't be eating this, but we, we really yeah, need to stop. It sounds you like, you know, and what's interesting, <laughs> you bring up such a great point is that it's really almost a bonding thing. It's become so normalized in our society to have those conversations and talk about our bodies and our food and our movement patterns in a way that's almost competitive. But when we take a step back, it's like, Oh, that's not, that does not necessarily contribute to a healthy relationship with not just food, but also with my body. Right. Right. So you're an intuitive eating counselor and, um, I have actually read the intuitive eating book, um, by, I want to make sure I say their names right. So the RDNs, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich, are they the ones who developed this concept? Correct. Or did this they actually, them? yeah, came up with the concept, at least as far as to my knowledge, you know, what's interesting is that intuitive eating is gaining, it is becoming a little bit more mainstream. You know, here we are in a podcast talking about it, but it's, I mean, it really developed back in the nineties. So it's nothing new. Um, but we talked about diet culture and diet culture is very smart. Uh, the, weight loss industry will always try to twist and turn things and take, you know, even what <laughs> has good intentions, they will turn it into a diet if that means that they can sell it. Sure. Yes, they will. <laughs> so, um, help us understand the history a little bit more of it. When you said it started in the nineties, help describe it a little bit more. So our listeners understand what intuitive eating is. Yeah. So it's, the really the best way that I describe it, it's it's a framework of eating. It's a, it's a model. It's a lens that we make decisions through, or that I personally use to counsel um, and educate my clients. So it was developed by those two dietitians. They actually worked, I believe, they worked next to each other in a private practice office, and you know they they pop out between sessions and talk together and be like, why why can't our patients follow what we're trying to tell them, or why is it that everybody you know air quotes is failing at 
these diets and they can't stick to these eating patterns. And so really they, they brought their heads together and they realized there's gotta be another way, you know, there's gotta be another way to educate people on behavior change and to like to get outside of that, that diet mentality. And so fast forward, there's now been uh, quite a few iterations of the book. And I believe now we're up to over, I want to say over 150 studies, which is super exciting to back up um, the efficacy of this intuitive eating model. So like I said, it's really this framework that we follow. There's 10 principles um, that kind of guide it. But again, they're, they're principles, they're, they're goals, they're not rules, it's not restrictive. And so it's really a self-care model of eating. And I like to say it's kind of where the self-care meets science and really puts the person but really in tune with their body to help them make decisions around food and movement that you know lead towards those healthier habits and improve their health but recognizing that health is not just what we eat and how we move there's many more facets to wellness and health and that includes our mental health our spiritual wealth you know our resiliency so many other factors than um, just eat this not that so I know um, from reading the book and um, kind of just the discussion that sometimes people call it mindful eating. So there's this idea of, um, you know, when you're hungry, eat, and when you're satisfied, stop. And that sounds very easy to do. Um, but obviously this concept is not that easy. <laughs> so I guess maybe how is this um, concept being uh, conveyed incorrectly? Why are people having trouble following it? And then, I mean, we've talked about the diet culture. So uh, is the diet culture hijacking this concept at all? Oh, 100%. 100%. I don't know if you guys <laughs> follow like pop culture, but Gwyneth Paltrow recently, I, guess, I don't know if you're familiar, she's got, I think it's a Netflix series where she talks about all these health things. Anyway, she came out with a book called Intuitive Fasting. And our, you know, intuitive eating community. I speak with Elise, you know, fairly regularly in our, you know, groups of that were certified, and it's like, oh my gosh, we can't catch a break. They're, they're smart and twisting and turning. But you mentioned, you know, hunger and fullness and mindful eating, and mindful eating is really an aspect of intuitive eating. So mindful eating is using our senses. It's using our visual, our audio, you know, all those five senses in the eating experience, but that's only one piece of the puzzle. And that's another area where people misconstrue intuitive eating as they think it's just eat this, not that. And hunger and fullness are only two principles <laughs> of the 10, right? The other aspects are really looking at that diet mindset or looking at that satisfaction piece or looking at food rules, you know, how we think about food and, and the dialogue that goes on between our ears. So it's a, it's a slice of it, but it's not the whole piece of it. So Katie, you mentioned that there was a, a quite growing set of evidence in the research. So what, what really kind of markers does that research look at? So what can intuitive eating do for individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. So the the evidence, the research is out of the the research that is currently out, they use a there's quite a few different things that they're looking at. One, I keep this on my desk because I use all the time, but they actually developed a workbook and I use this uh, in practice with my clients a lot where um, you know, they'll do assessments before and after somebody going through this workbook and to show that it has made improvements towards their health. You know, we know that from the research that intuitive eaters have higher self-esteem, they have um, you know, greater resiliency in terms of 
not just their physical body, but also being able to make decisions. You know, I guess a better way to say it is like the psychological hardiness um, to eating. There's research that shows that intuitive eaters eat a wider variety of foods. You know, a lot of people think intuitive eating means, oh, I'll just eat, eat whatever you want, <laughs> whatever you want. And yes, it's part of it. But the research behind what we call habituation shows that, you know, what actually happens in practice is that when we have permission to eat whatever we want, whenever we want, if you're allowed to eat pizza all day, every day, I can guarantee you by, by Friday, at least you're not going to want to even look at pizza. Right. And so what, what we're seeing, you know, and it's what, it's exciting to look at the evidence, but I've been doing this in practice for, for several years now that I actually see it, you know, in, in person in my own clients that people do really have a healthier relationship with food and they're able to then take that energy that they've spent so long trying to control this aspect of their life. And they're able to just have that, um, greater bandwidth to deal with some of those more difficult aspects in life, because we know that yes, food is a part of our lives and it should be enjoyed, but it shouldn't be the only thing that we focus on. So I think it's funny what you were saying there about if we were to eat pizza every day by Friday, we'd be tired of it. Um, I just spent this last week with my uh, family on vacation and my 11 year old nephew, I was asking about what his favorite food was. And I was laughing because I'm like, man, he really thought about this too much. Because I was like, if you could eat one food every day, what would it be? And he was like, well, I wouldn't like the food anymore if I ate it every day. And I'm like, okay, but I was like, just tell me your favorite food, you know? But like you saying that really made me think kids are very good at this concept, are they not? Kids, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you brought this up because kids are the best intuitive eaters. I mean, we can all think of a moment where whether it's our own kids or if you've been at a toddler's birthday party, you can pretty much point out the kid that is not allowed to have sugar in the house. They're not allowed to have sweets because they're the kid that is running back and forth to the dessert table, stealing cookies, right? Because, because it's off limits, right? Because it's exciting. But when we have that permission to eat or enjoy all foods, it takes away a lot of the allure. You know, the other, another example I'll give is if anybody, is anybody on this call married or dating in a relationship? I think we all are. Yeah. So remember the first time you said, I love you. It was like, Ooh, you got like goosebumps. It felt really good. It was so excited to hear. Now, if you've been with that same person after a while, it's like, it's nice to hear. It is. I still appreciate it, but it doesn't have the same excitement. Right. Like, <laughs> and so that's kind of the same idea of what happens with, with habituation and uh, going back to the kids example, you know, another great thing, watch a child while they eat, if they've got dessert on their plate and broccoli and, you know, macaroni, they'll, they'll eat what they want and then they get back to playing. Right. And so I often do this exercise with my clients a lot as I have them think back to that childlike state when they really didn't have any thoughts or you know, firm beliefs around food or their body and just ask them, what would, what would a day look like? What would you eat? You know, would you play? Would you move? Would you not move? <laughs> you know, what would it look like? And it's really going back to, we can trust our bodies. Our bodies are very smart and we can trust them if, if we learn to listen to them. Yeah. And I think too, saying that though, you started off by talking about diet culture and a five-year-old child thinking she shouldn't eat anything. So we as adults are really kind of taking this intuitive eating away from our children, it sounds like, by 
restricting sugar or whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I work with a lot of adults now who, oh my goodness, we, we have a lot of those conversations of where a lot of this diet culture started. And for um, many people, you know, it started when they were young, it started in their house. And, you know, I don't think that's any fault to our parents. I think our parents were doing the best that they could. They were doing probably what they were taught, but it really can somebody can hold on to that for a really long time. Um, there's research even with body image that shows that children, I can't remember, I think it's like age two or three, however old you are, you start to go, okay, nose, I have a nose, right? And then at, you know, few, a year later, so you start to learn, okay, you have a nose, that's your nose, this is my nose. And then I think by the age of five is as young as that, especially girls, they start to recognize like big nose, bad, small nose, good. They start to notice the difference. And at five years old, girls start to develop a um, likeness for thinner, for smaller bodies, a dislike for fat. And same with boys. Boys at that same age also start to develop, okay, muscular is better, fat is bad. And so if we think about that, if that message is being ingrained in us from five years old, oh my goodness. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to understand and kind of relearn and to trust your body. Because if you've got all these external factors working against you, it's it can be a challenge, but it can be done. And I will say it's, it's definitely worth it. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I know one thing I'm having to relearn is I was a proud member of the clean plate club my entire childhood. So one of, <laughs> one of six kids over here, I can relate to that. Absolutely. So, so this may not be a fair question because it's a really heavy one, but if someone was listening to you just now and they recognized themselves in that either they were the child who had these food, um, values placed on them, or maybe they've been starting to recognize that they are doing that in their own family. Like what is one thing that we as a culture, as parents, as adults can do to begin to shift our thinking about food? Love that question. I would say for any parent listening, I would start by getting curious about your own relationship with food, like starting there. Right. And, and asking yourself maybe what were things that you learned growing up that, positively impacted you or maybe negatively impacted you, right? And you have that decision to then, you know, rewrite the, rewrite the story. Um, and that's something a lot of, especially the women that I work with, that's, that's one thing that feels them the pull to make that change is because they go, Oh, I don't want, they, they recognize their, maybe it's their daughter saying, I'm fat. I shouldn't wear this. Or I can't eat that. That's bad. Like that really young age. And that can really be an eye opener for especially parents to go, Oh, they're listening to me already. I don't want that. I don't want them to have the same struggle that I had. And so, you know, I'd, I'd recommend somebody to read the intuitive eating book. Uh, another great resource for parents is Ellen Satter. She talks about the division of responsibility. And I love, love, love the framework that she talks about. And it, a lot of it overlaps with intuitive eating, but it's, again, it's recognizing that children are very smart and, and they can be trusted around food and they can trust their bodies. But it's when we try to interject and remove that trust, that's where it gets confusing for them. Um, I even remember, I'll never forget in my coursework at Purdue. I don't know why this like vi video sticks in my head so vividly. 
we were watching a video, all, learning all about family meals. We were watching this video of this, this family and this little girl eating tacos. And she was four years old. And it, I remember learning that it was not about intuitive eating, which is interesting looking back. But it was recognizing that, you know, when we tell a four-year-old to stop, know you've had enough, what that does at that young age is that starts to tell them, no, you, you've had enough. You can't trust your body. <laughs> I'm telling you because of what I think is too much or too little, but we all have this internal, you know, calorie counter, I guess you will, right? We all have that internal regulator, but we get so out of touch from that, that it can be hard to recognize the hunger and fullness. But over time, it's like I said, it's possible and we can, we can relearn it. Absolutely. That was a very long winded answer. <laughs> I love it. I love because this is a deep, complex issue, right? And we start thinking about the psychology behind food and food habits. That's not just something you wake up and say, like, I want to do different. I'm going to be different. Like, we all know we've all tried. It's not like that. So how does someone even begin? Like, you mentioned examining the way we think about food, but kind of what does that even look look like? Does that mean keeping a journal? Does it mean, I mean, fill us I in love that question. You're right. It is, it is so much psychology. And I would give the example, you know, if, if you think about if you had a best friend and every day you said all these things to her, you said like, you're ugly, you're a liar, right? You said all these negative, horrible things. But then one day you said, I love you. You're beautiful. <laughs> you can eat what you want. Like, would you believe her or would she believe you? Heck no, she, she would not believe you if you said negative things and then one day you just flip the script, right? And so for anybody listening, it, it does take time. It takes time to develop compassion. But if you can continue to come from a place of curiosity and not judgment and just get curious about your thought process around food, get curious about your eating patterns, what you are eating or not eating, you know, and, and keeping a journal is a great idea. You know, I recommend if somebody's keeping a journal, get rid of my fitness pal, use good old pen to paper and just journal and just write like any, any thoughts that come up around food, any, any patterns. Cause what that does is that allows you, it gives you that data to then look back and say, okay, I notice every time after, gosh, I don't know. Every time after I get off the phone with this person, I run to the kitchen Oh, that person really stresses me out. Okay, that's good to know, right? Like just gathering information because the more you can get curious, the more you start to just have information and then you can decide what to do with that information. But that self-awareness is, is huge. That journaling would probably come into handy late at night when um, we all snack <laughs> to think about what we're feeling yeah. at that time instead of maybe mm -hmm. needing. <laughs> Yeah. So that hunger fullness, that's only one, like I said, that's only one piece of the puzzle because, you know, it's, it's one thing to recognize when you're hungry, recognize when you're full, but what about then when you recognize I'm not hungry, but what do I need? And so part of this, you know, intuitive eating process too, is learning to be able to cope with, with that spectrum of feelings and to be able to cope with them, you know, with kindness, a lot of, you know, for a lot of people who have used food as a coping mechanism, it probably served a a good purpose. You know, probably it was a way to protect yourself from those negative feelings, or sometimes there's trauma or, oh my gosh, it could be so many things recognizing, okay, is that going to really solve the problem? And, and that's where like, you know, Tanya, you mentioned like, this is heavy and it is heavy because a lot of times food is not just food. It's, it's cultural, it's emotional, it's, 
it's relationships, it's social. I mean, there's so many aspects integrated with food. And I think it's something to not be feared though. If we can start learning how to celebrate and embrace that piece of it, it makes life that just more, much more enjoyable. Absolutely. So I have a question here. I want to add another layer to this. So let's say I am diagnosed with a medical condition, diabetes, for example, because we know there's some pretty um, somewhat rigid guidelines um, put down from our experts about how to manage that through our food and eating habits. So how do you, how do you marry these two things? Yeah, that, that is, I love that question and it's definitely possible. Um, and that's why, you know, somebody listening, if they do have a medical diagnosis, I'd highly recommend working with a registered dietitian who has that medical nutrition therapy background and can integrate this piece. But, you know, I, and maybe this is my bias, but <laughs> I truly believe that your relationship with food is the foundation, right? And if we can get that piece figured out first, that really is key. But how that looks, let's say med managing some sort of disease is what's a weight neutral intervention, right? What can we do with somebody, let's say, let's say somebody isn't eating regular meals and their blood sugar's all over the place. Well, can let's start by eating regular meals, right? And, you know, intuitive eating isn't, isn't anti-nutrition, but if we put all that focus solely on the what around food, it really distracts us from these other aspects and getting to, in tune with my body. So, you know, it, again, it's, it's possible to do this. I, I did some intuitive eating with my metabolic patients. You know, I would have patients who they could only eat five grams of protein in a day. <laughs> right. And so that's just how they had to eat. And, but it was, it was the lens that they looked through it with making some of that changes, right? Am I doing this because it's a diet? Am I do like looking at all these other aspects of food kind of like we talked about versus just cut this out. Tanya, I want to build on that because, um, we're Purdue Extension educators. And so we teach a program um, within our system called Dining with Diabetes. And so like she said, they're coming, they're trying to learn some of these new dietary practices um, to help them control it. All of them have been told, you know, don't eat white foods. Um, that's not okay. And so I know when I'm teaching, I'm always trying to explain to them that no, white foods are important in our diet. Carbohydrates are needed too. This isn't a no carb diet because you know carbohydrates are fuel our bodies and whatnot. So how can we as um, educators form messages to these people that have medical conditions to help them you know, handle that diet that they need to be following but also um, practice some intuitive eating techniques? You know, really one of the first things, especially working with somebody who's had a diagnosis before, you know, maybe they've had this diagnosis for a long time or they've newly received that diagnosis. I think it's really important for us as, you know, professionals to first of all, hold space, hold space for them to kind of understand the diagnoses. You know, I've had so many people come into my office that have been diagnosed and well, let's talk about, they've, they've already been told to just cut carbs or like you said, cut out things that are white and I kind of pump the brakes and go, well, do you know what an A1C is? Has anyone ever explained to you what's happening in your body? Like, what does that mean that you have higher blood sugar? And so I think simply by starting there, what that does is that helps to develop that relationship with, with the person to, to then help them feel comfortable to ask those questions or me, be more open to then making uh, behavior change because it's on their terms. They get to decide they're not being told or, or more importantly, shamed 
into what to do and, and really empowering people to make the decisions versus this is what you have to do, right? Because we don't like being told what to do. And we don't follow it if we are told. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. And people want meal plans. I'm like, I'm not writing you a meal plan because you're not going to follow it. Whatever, whenever you want that piece of pizza, you're going to eat it anyways. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that brings up a great point too. Let's say with, with diabetes or these groups that have, you know, medical conditions is helping them to see the bigger picture, right? We don't, it, it, you're not, not going to eat pizza ever again. Like you are right, but let's understand what's happening in our bodies so that we can enjoy all foods, but in a way that nourishes our body, but also, you know, celebrates that emotional or social piece of it as well. So if someone is listening and they're thinking, man, I wish I could connect with someone like you who's in my community that can help me really dig into some of this stuff, whether or not they have a medical condition, maybe they just want help thinking through their own relationship with food and those challenges. Like how can they find that person? Yeah. And so I will say not every, it's it, the titles get tricky. Not every nutritionist is a dietitian. Not every dietitian is certified in intuitive eating, you know, so everybody has definitely their own style, but I will say with dietitians, we do come from an evidence-based. So, you know, our goal, everything that we educate on is backed by evidence. Um, so if somebody's looking to work with specifically an intuitive eating counselor in their community, you can actually go to the intuitiveeating.org website and they've got a directory on there with all different um, people and you can sort by state. Uh, it will say not every, and you don't have to be a dietitian to be a, an intuitive eating counselor. So I would recommend if somebody does have a specific dietary concern that they connect with a dietitian. Uh, but you know, there's counselors out there who are very comfortable with this framework, who can help kind of walk side by side with you and more of a coaching aspect, I guess you could say, but the book is a great resource. You know, the workbook is a great resource and even just checking out the website, you can find all sorts of studies and, and blog posts that really explain a lot of the, the nuances behind it. So one of the things we're hoping to do with this podcast is we're, we're dispelling myths is what we're trying to do. And so, uh, one of our pet peeves, we all shared our pet peeves in our very first episode that we, uh, landed. And one of them was people giving information that aren't, uh, credentialed, certified, whatever. So what kind of um, rigorous routine did you have to go to in order to be an intuitive eating counselor? Oh my goodness. Where did it, I, it took so long. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of forget. But um, so what's what I love about Evelyn Tribbley, she's one of the creators, is that she still does. And she's Man, she does not need to be working probably at this point at all. She's been doing this for so many years. She's been at her, she has a private practice based out of um, somewhere in California, but she herself does all the, the conferences. And so you have, I can't remember how many, but quite a few, you know, presentations, I guess, where she goes through the principles. You have to go through the book itself and take a 200, 200 questions, a long test. <laughs> There's a lot of learning material RN, right? Because I can't help somebody unless I've gone through it myself, especially when it comes to intuitive eating and, you know, incorporating body image in that piece, because I've got to deal with my own stuff first, right? That's only going to make me a better, better clinician. So after going through the coursework, going through the online 
I guess, presentations or kind of video calls that you do, she then has what's called supervision. So those are small groups that um, we work with her. And I think there is usually maybe four or five other clinicians on the call where you actually have to bring a case study to talk about. And so you get really get to hear some of those like what's happening out in the field? What are people actually experiencing? Because it's one thing to read it. It's one thing to listen to it, but it's another to actually have a person in front of you who has their own complex relationship with food. And so then you had to take another test. So it's, it was quite extensive, but oh my goodness, I highly recommend if anybody is, does have a health background. Um, I can't remember the specific requirements, but there's all those details on the website as well. It's, it's a very um, eye-opening experience for sure. I will have to admit, I read the book and started to take the two, 300 question quiz and never made it through the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> it's long. It was long. Yeah. I started the process and I've never finished. <laughs> well, you could always go back and, and finish. I think I, I broke mine up quite a bit too. I, I, I tell myself that often. I'm going to go back and finish that and here I still am. So yeah. <laughs> part of that is it's a long, intense, detailed process to make sure these persons with the certification have have not only been through the training, but that personal experience to be able to turn around and help you. So to summarize for our listeners, intuitiveeating.org would be a good place to start if they wanted to learn more. If they are looking for an intuitive eating counselor, know that m many people from different health backgrounds can become an intuitive eating counselor, which is perfectly great if you're just needing that counseling piece. But if you have a medical condition that might require some more detailed specific recommendations be sure to look for someone with those registered dietitian credentials because they do have that um, expertise and specific training in that area and so anything else you are dying to share uh, with us on this topic before we um, go to our fun close wrap-up oh my goodness that's a, that's such a hard question uh, <laughs> gosh I would just say for anybody listening you know, get curious. And if anything that we talked about in this episode, like, ugh, maybe it just like hit you the wrong way or pulled at you in a certain way, lean into that discomfort and just recognize that there is a way to enjoy food and not feel guilt or shame around what you eat and, and your body. And so be curious, there's resources available and don't be afraid to ask for help. Awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. So do you want to share with us on how we can find more from you with, on your social media, website, whatever you might have? Sure. Yeah. I love to hang out on Instagram. My Instagram is KT, just a K, just a T, Hake, H-A-K-E. And my website is also where you can find me and send me an email. My website's just katiehake.com. Awesome. Pretty easy. Perfect. So I want to end every uh, episode with just a fun question. And so I'm, I got two. And so I'll let you answer which one um, you maybe want. So, uh, what is your favorite food pun would be question number one, or if you could be any food, what would you be? That is really hard. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm going to lose sleep over this tonight. <laughs> There's so many good food puns. And you know, I wish my mom got me a calendar for Christmas one year and it was just all food puns. And it was mm -hmm. like a dietitian's dream. Abby, it looks so good in your background right there, right, right <laughs> by your, your plate. Ah, so I don't know. Let us talk about it, maybe. Nice. Since I'm a do like more counseling, we'll we'll there pick that one. Yeah, you need that right behind you <laughs> when you're counseling people. <laughs> I like it. 
All right. Well, thanks, everyone. <laughs> Katie Hake. You can connect with her at katiehake.com or on social media at KT Hake. Thank you so All much. Right. And thanks for joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you. <laughs>